Hello everyone and welcome to a brand new episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your host, Simon. What happens here is Callum has written me a script, our dear writer here on The Casual Criminalist. This one's Glennon Engelman, dentist by day, hitman by night. I feel like hitman, don't they make like tons of money or is that just in movies? In reality, I imagine <laughs> it's probably like hitman are like, yeah, it's just people who aren't particularly skilled and have turned to crime. It's probably not all elite assassinations that cost millions of dollars. It's probably more like, no, 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 yeah, give me a grand and I'll knock off that guy you don't like. <laughs> So maybe they do need the day job. Uh, what happens here is Callum has written it. I'm going to read it. I've not read it before. People have described it as a cold read. That's what this show is. And then, of course, Jen, our fantastic editor for this show, will sprinkle in some music, some images, all of that wonderful stuff. So it makes it into more of a polished production. Let's jump in. It takes a certain kind of person to be able to kill another human being. Yes, it does. It ta <laughs> We use the word psycho a lot on this channel, and I feel we can use it right here. Those words ring true, but those kind of people are often the ones we would least suspect. Case in point, the man that that quote, it takes a certain kind of person to kill another human being, belongs to. Glennon Engelman, aka the killer dentist. On this show, we've covered plenty of gangland hitmen, twisted sexual predators, and mad cult leaders. That's all par for the course with true crime. <laughs> it's true, we haven't covered a lot of dentists. Although we have covered doctors. We've covered two doctors. If not two, then the second will be coming soon. But Glennon himself stands out from the list specifically because he doesn't really stand out. Few expected that this unassuming St. Louis man would actually turn out to be one of the most prolific serial killers in the city's history. Oh my god. From the 1950s to the 1980s, he lived a shocking double life, filling cavities in the day and moonlighting as a semi-pro hitman. Does a hitman count as a serial killer? I mean, I guess like technically, yes. But I feel like serial killers are more like the... No, I, I, I don't want to defend Hitman. That is the last thing that I intend to do on this show. But it's like, you're doing a job. Like, if you were in the military and you killed, like, ten people, they're not going to be like, you're a serial killer. It's no. You're a soldier. And I am really sounding like I'm defending Hitman. So I'm just going to stop and be like, yeah, 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 they're serial killers. Fair play. Now, a lot of you probably already assume that your dentist is an evil satanist. <laughs> oh my god. But Engelman was on another level. Death dealing was his greatest passion, and he took great glee in executing carefully calculated plots that left the police scratching their heads in confusion. Today, we'll be looking into the deadly dentist's twisted genius and how his murderous bravado eventually got the better of him. Deadly Gold Digging on September the 5th, 1976, newly married dental nurse Carmen, 24, was walking through a countryside park near Pacific, Missouri with her husband, Peter Harm, 26. The young couple were on their way to a car show at the Six Flags theme park when they decided to stop off and explore some of the caves dotted around the area. I get the feeling they are going to be murdered. The fields and glades were mostly empty that day, bar the odd family out for a Sunday walk. Carmen and Peter made their way to a secluded area in the middle of the park, a pond tucked away in a clearing. As they stood on the banks, looking out over the water, the tranquil ambience was interrupted by a loud crack. A bullet ripped through the air, pierced Peter's back, and set a spray of red mist out from his chest. Oh, this is so sad. It's like this sounds like a beautiful like Sunday afternoon. You're gonna go do something fun, look at some cars, you stop by a nice park. It's the 1970s. 
I don't know why that makes a difference, but you know, it's the past. It's like they don't have Twitter bothering them all the time. It was still worse, though. It was always worse in the past. Don't forget it. A family walking nearby came running when they heard Carmen's screams and found her husband bleeding out on the floor. Not knowing what to do, she ran off down the path back towards the car park. The family did their best to save Peter, but it was hopeless. He was declared dead on arrival at hospital. When the police scoured the scene later that day, they discovered a 6mm rifle with a telescopic sight buried under a pile of leaves about 50 meters from the body. At first, they theorized that it might have been an accident. The area was a well kno- was well known as a popular spot for target shooters. What? How on earth are you allowed to just go shoot targets in the park with a gun? Is that really allowed in America? Surely just go to a gun range or do it on private property. If I went to the park and people were shooting guns at targets, I'd be like, yo, why hasn't anyone called the police yet? But then another wanderer who was there that day reported a curious little detail. As Carmen ran back toward the roads in hysterics, she was intercepted by a man who burst out from between the trees. The passerby called out just in case she was in trouble, and the man disappeared back into the woods. Who was this mysterious figure, and why did he reveal himself to the victim's wife that day? Ooh, did she take out a hit on him? I mean, it's always the wife. I mean, I don't think so. They seem very happy from the two lines that I read about them. (laughs) But maybe this was some sort of weird, like, I got him. Did you get him? Yes. Confirmed. Go back in the bushes. (laughs) I won't leave you hanging to find out. It was our guy, Glenn Engelman. He was the one who fired the shot from the bushes, which passed just inches past the dead man's heart. So why was he comfortable showing his face to the soon-to-be widow that day? Well, he and she were already well acquainted. Simon, I mean... Well done for spotting it, but then not so well done for immediately being like, nah, it wasn't her, even though it's always the wife. Come on. In fact, the two had been working together on this murder plot, of course they had, before she and her husband even met. What are you up to? (laughs) This is very elaborate. It all began when she started working alongside our deadly dentist at his clinic on the south side of St. Louis. She had known Engelman for most of her life, and he was her first boss while she trained for her dental nursing qualifications. Despite being a 3 out of 10 at absolute best, Glennon saw himself as a ladies' man and prided himself on being able to bring women, especially young, attractive ones, under his control. At that point, Carmen was in her early 20s and and he was pushing 50, but it's thought they started a sexual relationship at the office. I'm sure they sterilized the dental chair afterwards. Oh, Callum, no. Why would you? No. I don't want to think about my the chair I sit in at the dentist's in that way. Oh, God. Couple his ladies' man persona with his love for firearms, and it's clear that Engelman thought of himself as a bit of a James Bond-type character. Except James Bond is not a 3 out of 10, any of them. And also, he's not an assassin, is he? Or a dentist. Or American. Or anything like you at all other than having a gun. <laughs> when his latest money penny worked with him at the clinic, she was still called by her maiden name, Carmen Miranda, not the one with the fruit hats, as she hadn't found a man to settle down with yet. One day she came into the clinic complaining of financial problems, and Engelman made her a proposal. Not a marriage proposal, he was already married to his third wife, although his idea did include a marriage. Wait, so she's gonna find some rich guy, get married to him, and then he's gonna shoot them? That is so elaborate. One day, and, and then she gets half the money through his inheritance or whatever. The dentist's idea was that Carmen should find a good, honest, hardworking bloke to marry so that he could murder him in cold blood for the life insurance payout. Okay, just finding a regular dude with a life insurance policy. Okay. Probably not the advice the young nurse was expecting. <laughs> but after a bit of trepidation, she began to come round to the notion. Oh my god. I mean credit to this guy that is some persuasive skills right there on the one hand she would be making herself a co-conspirator in a horrible cynical murder but on the other hand 
money is quite nice. I mean, agreed. But you know things I wouldn't do for money? Kill someone. Or get involved in a plot to kill someone. I mean, that would be pretty intense. As for practicalities, Engelman told him not to worry. He had done this kind of thing before with zero issues. Dude, you just admit your crimes to someone? Just, alright. After a bit more convincing, she was fully on board. Engelman talked her through the kind of guy she should be looking for. I'm not sure what criteria he laid out, but if I had to guess, someone with a tolerable personality, she'd be spending quite a lot of time with him after all, someone young, the older you are, the lower the insurance payout, and someone trusting enough to be easily manipulated. Then they spent the following months whittling through a long list of eligible bachelors from Carmen's personal life. I've had some grim episodes in my romantic life, but imagine finally bucking up the courage to ask out the woman of your dreams and she's just planning on having her pervy old boss assassinate you for a few grand <laughs> super depressing isn't it <laughs> oh god that's the miserable situation that peter unwittingly found himself in when he and carmen started dating in 1975. carmen you psycho to like go through all of that hassle and just you psycho they were married within the year and carmen quit her job at engelman's clinic to avoid arousing suspicion the two kept in close contact with their older lover instructing her on how to go about taking out life insurance policies on her new husband meanwhile she had to keep up the life insurance policies when anyone's taken out like multiple any any anyone who's got multiple life insurance policies uh especially taken out by someone else you should like if if that's you if your wife has taken out multiple insurance policies on your life just be careful all right you know just pro tip here from from simon just you know keep an eye on things people are going to be in the comments being like what's wrong with having multiple life insurance policies i don't understand my wife says they're brilliant and i mean it's probably legitimate reasons like if you do die it's it's good to have money <laughs> because especially if you like soul bread we actually have a sponsor on another channel that i do which is all about life insurance and why it's a good thing but they don't ever say anything about multiple policies the only time i've heard about multiple policies is like in crime <laughs> someone is getting killed meanwhile she had to keep up the facade of a happy healthy marriage a fake double life that her partner thought was reality after about six months of fake marital bliss the deadly gold digger and her murder coach started phase three the assassination itself engelman had his accomplice robert handy the cue to his bonds procure the rifle on the black market meaning it couldn't be traced back to him also dude you're making another classic criminal mistake you're involving other people in your crimes like we've talked about this there's already two people involved in your crimes which is just risky it's risky business because they can turn on you if you're gonna do crimes do the crime solo then he and carmen scouted out several locations around missouri where engelman could take the shot and make a quick getaway on two separate occasions he even had the target in his sights but had to keep his figure off the trigger uh, when the arrival of potential witnesses ruined the opportunities third time's a charm though after settling on the park for this try glennon and carmen went there for a dry run a few days before the planned date he gave explicit instructions on where and how they should stand so he could pull off the kill with minimal risk you've already seen what came next engelman lay in the bushes and blasted a hole right through the innocent man's chest theory is one thing but practice is entirely another perhaps the reality of actually seeing a husband shot dead was too much for carmen as she ran off engelman thought she might be coming down with a bad case of buyer's remorse a bit late karmas he showed himself for just a second to make sure that she didn't blow the whole thing after that karma managed to play the role of damsel in distress to a t while Engelman made his escape, she went to flag down help from a passing car and brought the paramedics to the scene. Then, after it was over, she waited long enough to avoid suspicion and collected $75,000 from her late husband's insurance policies, about $350,000 in today's money, which is a lot of money. 
but it's not millions of dollars. And you gave up like, was it years of your life to do this crazy thing and then risk going to prison for murder? What is up with you? Around six months after the killing, the trigger man got his cut, a modest $10,000 for his troubles, delivered by Carmen's brother, who was, on, who was in on the plan. Okay, so now there's four people involved in this murder plot. Carmen's brother, what are you doing? You're just a delivery man for crime money? Why on earth would you get involved? It's How much are you getting paid? Also, if I was that dentist, I'd be like, yo, I want half that money. I pulled the trigger. What are you talking about? Also, I'm in charge. I feel like the dentist guy was in charge. It was his idea. Why is he only getting 10 grand? He killed someone. Are you crazy? She received all the sympathy of a grieving widow, and he returned to his dental practice satisfied with another job well done. Any question marks left hanging over the death of Peter Harm and the minds of the investigators would remain unanswered for now. Yeah, I'm getting the feeling we're going to get answers in this one because there's a very detailed explanation of the crime that sounds like it. it we have it because it was solved. Just wild-ass guess there. License to drill. Bada bum bum. But before we deal with what came next, a bit of background. What exactly drove an innocent, everyday hitman to pursue the sadistic career path of dentistry? His biography doesn't offer many clues, no trauma, no mental health issues, nothing beyond the suggestion that maybe he was just born this way. Glennon Engelman was born to a working-class family in St. Louis in 1927. An average student throughout education, he went on to serve in the armed forces, and he had his college dunked through the GI bill dunked i guess that is like another word for like comped like he got it for free like a scholarship he learned something new every day he graduated with a degree in dentistry from washington either that or it's just a typo and everyone just learned a word learned a word wrong including me i'm gonna be like yeah i'm getting my college dunked what are you talking about for free dunked for free no i don't know <laughs> Sorry. He graduated with a degree in dentistry from Washington University in 1954 and returned to St. Louis to set up his own dental practice. Engelman soon became known as a pillar of the community offering free dental care to the disadvantaged and generally being a stand-up guy, except when he was assassinating. But behind this public persona was a hidden self. Cheery, unassuming Glenn was a self-admitted sociopath who relished the idea of outwitting the police and killing without remorse, and when you have zero regard for the sanctity of life, what's a life insurance policy but a bounty on someone's head? <laughs> it's so dark. But yeah, it's one of these people, it's like, why are you so why are you a psycho? I don't know, just am. Just I'm just a sociopath. I you know, just am. It's like it's like that. Did you do you guys ever watch that Dexter TV show? It's like, although he saw his parents killed brutally in a murder when he was like three, but he's also like, why are you a psycho? It's just, I am. I just am. I have to kill. I don't know why. <laughs> there are just some people like that. Glenn seems to be one of them. That's psycho. As far as we know, the idea for homicidal insurance fraud first struck Glenn back in the late 50s. This was when he and his first wife, Ruth, the, Ruth, the mother to his only child, got divorced after three years of marriage. After the split, they stayed on good terms and continued a sexual relationship. As I mentioned before, sex is a recurring theme in many of Engelman's crimes. The New York Daily News reported that he had a hypnotic hold over women and used his animal magnetism to draw them to his plots. The Daily New York Daily News reported he had an animal magnetism. Didn't we describe this guy as a three out of ten? <laughs> animal magnetism. Again, I can't stress enough how is how little his mugshots convey the supposed irresistibility. <laughs> I guess it just proves that confidence is key. 
But it wasn't enough to hold the relationship together. Eventually, Ruth went on to remarry, shacking up with a guy called James Bullock. But as you might have already guessed, this entire relationship was engineered by Ungerman from the outset, and the clock was ticking for Bullock. Oh my god, Glenn, how many people are you involving with your crimes? Have you got away? This seems to be like, is this, this is five? Plus you? Really? <laughs> About a year into their marriage in 1958, the couple were walking near the St. Louis Art Museum when Mr. Bullock was shot down by a hidden gunman. Of course, Engelman was a suspect in this murder, as spurned ex-husbands tended to be. But the cops never found anything to definitively link him to the killing. They were suspicious of Ruth from the outset too, partly because of her reputation as quite an unstable explosive character. Also, I'm just going to guess there might have been some life insurance policies involved. Probably more than one, because we know that that's always about crimes, allegedly. But without any proof, the community rallied behind her and accused the police of harassing a grieving women. So, women. So the investigation never came to anything, and Ruth received $64,500 from the life insurance payout. Sometime later, she gave an unknown amount to the gunman. It was Glenn, by the way! Shocking! This was his first recorded murder and would be far from his last. Glenn and Engelman had successfully switched out his dentist's drill for a hitman's gun and he had reaped the rewards. Afterwards, he returned to his day job, maintaining his cover as an unassuming dental practitioner while secretly mulling over fresh murder plots each and every day. Who's my ex-wife going to marry next? Although if the next person is also shot and killed and she gets a life insurance payout, that circumstantial evidence is going to lead to her going to prison. So he needs a new he needs a new person, wife, woman to find a mark. But then we're involving person number six in the murder crimes. Dude. It's not a good idea, is it? The satisfaction of that first hit led him to hatch more ambitious, more intricate, and more profitable plans as the years went on. The dentist of death earned quite a prolific track record in his side gig over the next 20 years. Dude, how you, you're not getting caught for like 20 years? And you're involving so many people in your crimes? And they're so obviously crimes? What's up, police? We haven't had a go at the police in a while. Come on. <laughs> Come on. And since a huge part of his motivation was the thrill of clever planning and meticulous execution, he didn't restrict himself to guns. His next known kill happened in 1963. By this point, Engelman had spent some of his ill-gotten gains fulfilling a childhood dream. He bought, he bought Pacific Drag Strip in Franklin County. After just a few years of operation, the racetrack proved to be a financial disaster for everyone involved. Glennon and his business partners were saddled with high operating costs that sapped away at their savings. Good news, he could top them up with murder. To get out of that rut, the deadly dentist decided to do what he did best. No, not dentistry. He was apparent. Don't dentists get quite well paid? I feel like dentist is a well-paid job. Do you really need to be out murdering people for like 10 grand? He was apparently pretty average at dentistry. He was actually going to murder one of his business partners and use the proceeds to cut his losses. The target this time was Eric Frey, one of several buddies who chipped in for the investment. Apparently, everyone back then was just desperate to see their husbands killed because Mrs. Frey eagerly accepted the offer. And now we're bringing in another person to the circle of murder crimes. Well done. You're getting caught. Seriously, is a divorce plot not a lot smarter? You get half his stuff with zero risk of jail time. But that was no fun for the murderous mastermind. Glenn was in it for the thrill of the kill and everything else was secondary. Yes, but the wife should be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you talking about? Why would I kill my husband? I don't need all his money. I'll just take half. I don't want to go to prison. You psycho. I'm calling the police. Did you really just suggest that to me, Glenn? How on earth does that not be part of his life? <laughs> 
The fate he dealt Eric was one of the most brutal imaginable. One day, Engelman asked for his help borrowing, blowing up a well on the drag strip property. How do you blow up a well? You like just put, why would you blow up a well? Just put a cover over the top. The plan was to toss half sticks of dynamite down to collapse the hole in on itself. But when just put a lid on it. How complicated can it be? But when Eric walked to the side of the well and peered down the depths, Engelman grabbed him by the waist and hoisted him over the edge. Oh my god. Eric tumbled down to the bottom of the well and landed in a crumpled heap. Before he had time to collect his thoughts, he heard a hissing sound approaching from above. A stick of dynamite landed right next to him. Eric was blown to pieces by the blast, and Glennon went running to tell everyone about the horrible accident that had just occurred. I'd struggle to imagine a more terrifying way to go. At least it's quick. I mean... I get, he survived that fall down the well, didn't he? Well, I want to know how deep the well was. Because if it's deep, you're not going to survive the fall. And then you're going to get blown to pieces, which is going to be like, oh my god, but then it's over. And it's you're not going to feel much pain getting blown up, are you? Inside a well. It's going to be very contained. It's going to be very messy. But at least they just, just put a lid over the well. And uh, just be like, yeah, 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 you, that's your grave now. <laughs> This is so dark. Why are we talking about this so much? Engelman's unlikely story that Eric fell in by accident and blew himself up stuck with the insurance investigators, and the death was ruled an accident, just like the last time Engelman took his cut from the widow a few months later. His biggest score yet. The next perm kill was the one we started with, Peter Harmon, 1976, which, after which Engelman's confidence as a killer skyrocketed. His next murder plots became more were the most ambitious yet. Despite being married to his third wife, he still couldn't turn off that superhuman sex appeal, and ended up having an affair with a patient named Barbara Boyle. She became his latest accomplice, and with longtime collaborator John Handy, they started planning another life insurance murder plot. This one was going to be bigger than ever because Engelman was desperate for cash to pay off some outstanding debts with the IRS. His past scores were pretty modest after all, especially since he took only a fraction of the total payouts. Ah, yes, you gotta pay tax on that murder money. <laughs> to make it worthwhile, they would have to stack up a pretty hefty pile of insurance policies on the next unlucky bachelor. Also, aren't they gonna be like, where's all that money coming from? <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 here's your dentist income. And what's this, like, random 10 grand that you're getting? It's like, uh, that's my murder money. Okay. <laughs> This time, it was the turn of Ronald Goosewell. After getting the green light from Glenn, Barbara managed to worm her way into the target's life, and the two were soon joined in holy matrimony. While poor Ron was enjoying the honeymoon phase, his, bride's got, his bride got working on 14, 14 separate life insurance policies! <laughs> That's insane. It's a bit unusual for a 33-year-old man. Oh my god, is it? Just have one life insurance policy with enough money. <laughs> 14? If you've got, look, right now, if you're listening to this and you've got 14 life insurance policies that you didn't take out, I mean, get your affairs in order, okay? Because you're getting killed. <laughs> With Engelman's help, she forged her husband's signature and opened the policies via mail, a cool $190,000 of total value. This is really small life insurance policies. I guess this was back in the day, so what, you add a zero, so, what, 1970s? Less than a zero. Let's say it's a million bucks. But 14. 
They're quite small individual policies. As they were building up this lucrative bounty, the conspirators discovered something else which sweetened the deal. Ronald's parents were pretty darn rich. Uh, he and his brother were the heirs to a minor oil fortune which was worth far more than the insurance money itself. There was just one problem though. The parents weren't exactly old and they stubbornly refused to get knocked down dead by a car. Engelman would have to handle them as well if he wanted his bonus pay, so he set to work scheming how to kill Barbara's new in-laws. Also, he's like doing all the scheming. And then he just gets like 10 grand at the end of things. It seems like he's taking all the risk. I mean, granted, the, the, the Barbara woman's got to go and marry this guy. And, you know, that's going to be not a great time. I don't have any sympathy for you, though. Because, look, you're, you're involved in this crazy murder crime plot. But Engelman's doing all the work. And he just gets at the end of it. It's like, yeah, here's your 10 grand. It's like, I guess you're just okay with it because you'd like killing. <laughs> you psycho. His plan was set in motion of the winter, in the winter of 1977. Robert Handy picked up Engelman at his house and drove him to the farmhouse in Madison County, where Arthur, 61, and Vanita, 55, Guswold lived. They pulled up at the back of the property as the sun was starting to go down, and Handy passed the hitman a briefcase. Inside was a pistol and a length of rope. Engerman slipped on the gloves and straightened his tie. The plan was to impersonate an official from the Farm Bureau, an organization that the couple themselves were a part of, to gain easy access to the house. He walked up on their porch and rang the bell. Handy watched from the car as the Gaswells invited the killer inside. They told Engerman to take a seat at the kitchen table, where he opened his briefcase and produced a 22 caliber pistol. He shouted them to get on the ground so he could tie them up with the rope, but that was never his intention. As soon as they lay down, Engelman shot them both in the back of the head. Three times for the wife twice for the husband dude it feels a bit unnecessary you can check can't you like why are we doing this also i was like I, in a previous casual criminal so i was reading the comments i think it was on youtube or maybe someone hit me up on tw twitter and i was like 22 caliber is a very small bullet and someone was like yeah, yeah yeah simon but if you shoot someone in the head with them it doesn't cause an exit wound so it just goes in and rattles around and really kills them badly and i'm like why do you know that <laughs> Like, I don't want to say like you listen to too much crime podcasts or watch too much crime stuff on YouTube because you're literally doing it, watching it, you know, my one. I appreciate it. But maybe you watch too much crime. <laughs> you're like, yeah, 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 the 22, that's the one. Rattles around in the head, really scrambles the brain. Uh-oh. We know this happened sometime around 6.50pm because Vanita's wristwatch stopped at that exact time. Her own blood clogged up the mechanism. With the two occupants dealt with, Engelman ran around the house, pulling out drawers and toppling over furniture to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Handy remained in the car with the engine running, and the two made their getaway less than 10 minutes after arriving. It seemed like another clean, calculated flawless hit from St. Louis's best semi-pro hitman. But it wasn't quite as successful as it first seemed. Amazingly, Arthur wasn't killed outright. He regained consciousness and was able to call the emergency services after Engelman disappeared. Dude, you were shot twice in the head by a tutu and I made that whole talk about scrambling the brains. Was the tutu person on Twitter wrong? Because, I mean, his brains were not that scrambled then, were they? His speech was extremely slurred on the count of the two gunshot wounds to the head, but he managed to explain that a couple of guys had robbed him and the paramedics couldn't get a decent description out of him before he lost consciousness again. Arthur eventually succumbed to the wounds before 9.30pm. That was phase two of the plan done and dusted. Now all that was left was to kill the original target and reap the rewards. Engelman knew that he couldn't rush things though. The only way to avoid suspicion was to spread the plan out over the course of several years, so each of the tragedies looked unconnected. That meant that Barbara ended up living with Ronald for over a year after her ex-lover ex murdered her, his parents. She slept in the same bed as him, helped him grieve the loss, even helped helped raise his kids, her stepkids, when they visited, all with the knowledge that her beloved hubby was next to die. It was only a matter of time before Engelman came knocking. 
Just that one paragraph description, I know I described it before as like being a fairly horrible thing to do, but that makes you a piece of doesn't it, Barbara? That makes you a total piece of <laughs> 15 months after his parents were brutally murdered, Ron's time came. The cold-blooded trio met to discuss Engelman's plans for the murder, which Handy later described as, go in and tie up Barbara like it was a robbery and she was there. And then when Ron came in, he was going to kill Ron like he resisted, throw some furniture around and break some lamps and then leave Barbara tied up in the bed. And then when the children or somebody come by, she would be found. A fake home invasion and sexual assault to distract from the murder itself. They even discussed leaving Barbara tied up for over a day and having her soul the bed just to give it a bit of authenticity. As if the whole thing wasn't going to be traumatic enough for his kids. Can you imagine them being the ones to walk in and find all of that? Yes, I can, because it was vividly described. And it just reminds me what an absolute piece of you are. Thankfully, though, they binned that plan, as Barbara didn't particularly like the idea of marinating in her own bodily fluids for 24 hours straight. Well, honestly, Barbara, you put up with a whole lot worse than that to, like, get this done, didn't you? You, like, faked being married to someone for a year, so... Instead, they decided to make it look like her husband never made it home at all. March 31st, 1979 was chosen as the fatal day. That evening, Engelman drove over to Handy's place at around 8.30pm, wearing his trademark murder gloves, okie dokie, and packing a pearl-handled 38 handgun. They drove to a shopping center parking lot where Barbara picked them up in her own car. The two guys ducked down low to make it look like she was the only one in the vehicle as they drove past the other farmhouses on the road. They then arrived at her place around 11pm. Ron had been working the evening shift at Amoco Railway in the town of Wood River. He left about 10 minutes before they got to the house and would be well on his way home. When the trio pulled into the garage, Barbara went inside to chill while Handy and Engelman waited there in the dark. Ten minutes later, they heard the car pulling up outside. The garage door swung open, and the victim took a step inside. Engelman rushed him, firing a shot right into Ronald Guswell's heart. The victim staggered back in shock, and Engelman swung at him with a single-handed sledgehammer, battering his head over and over again. Ronald collapsed to the ground, and Engelman delivered the final fatal blows to the side of his skull. Wait, the bullet in the heart and the previous hit to the head with a sledgehammer didn't kill him immediately? Ronald, you were made of tough stuff. I'm sorry you got murdered by these horrible, horrible human beings. Hardly the most elegant method, and as you'd expect, it left behind a lot of blood. Engelman shouted at Barbara to clean it up, and she rushed in with some towels to mop up the evidence. Meanwhile, the two men dragged the body into the car in the driveway. Why are you killing him like this? It's a premeditated murder. Why are you making it so messy? Just, like, strangle him to death. Or, you know, there's two of you. Why? Why so messy? You're just waiting. You're just trying to get caught, you psychos. The next morning at 7am, Barbara called the police to report her husband missing. She told them he never made it home from work the night before. It'd be several days before they discovered his fate. On the 4th of April, some witnesses reported an abandoned car by a motel in East St. Louis. Police found Ronald's corpse in the back seat with a brown garbage bag over his head. Aside from the gunshot and head wounds, his ankle had sustained a twisting fracture from when his body was dragged along the floor. When the officers went to inform Barbara, she feigned shock despite the fact that she spent the last few days scrubbing her partner's bloodstains off the garage floor and painting over the splatters on the wall. This is very unpleasant. According to court documents, at the time of his death, Ron was worth around $597,000, which is about $2.5 million today. All of that inheritance seems to have gone to Barbara, along with the $190,000 in life insurance payouts. It's going to be mad suspicious. The 34 life insurance payout policies or whatever? No one's looking into that after he was murdered? And, uh, I mean, 
Weird. Engelman prudently cut off all contact with her until the payments were finalized, just in case the police got whiff of foul play. But the connection didn't go unnoticed in the early investigation. The cops discovered that Barbara had connections to Engelman, who himself had been implicated in a lot of suspicious events over the years. Before that investigation could really build up steam, a surprise development. Some random guy decided to take the blame for killing Ronald Guswell for seemingly no reason. This was Andre Jones, who was in prison for three unrelated murders at the time. He claims to have shot Ron dead in a parking lot during a robbery gone wrong. Wait, okay, so in between the time this guy was shot and the confession, he went to prison for three unrelated murders? All right, dude. His motives for taking credit for the death of Ronald isn't clear in the slightest, but it got Engelman off the hook for now. Sounds like someone somehow got word to him. I mean, you're in prison for three murders. You're not leaving prison, right? It's America. Although, if you kill three people, I don't. I mean, some countries release you because there's, like, maximum life sentences. But, like, let's just assume you're not leaving prison. So, it's kind of like, what's? why not take the rap for another murder if someone's going to give some money to your family or your kids or whatever? Like, why not? What do you got to lose? They're going to be like, yeah, we gave you more years in prison. It's like, bro, I'm already in prison forever. <laughs> so what? Dentist of Doom makes victims go boom. Please excuse the title, I'm gunning for a side gig at the Sunday Mirror. <laughs> uh, international viewers, if you're not familiar with the Sunday Mirror, it's, it's a bit of a tatty uh, uh, British British tabloid. Our montage of murders is almost at an end. Engelman had just one more assassination in him before the past came back to haunt him. Once again, this crime began with money problems. By the time he ro murdered Ronald Guswell, Engelman's third wife, also called Ruth, just like his first, had divorced him. And even after collecting his cut from the last big job, he was still facing difficulties, probably because he got, like, she inherited, like, millions of dollars. He's like, yeah, what did I get paid? You got paid two and a half grand. <laughs> you, you might be, uh, you, come on, you could do better. The biggest thorn in his side was an outstanding bill from a dental lab in St. Louis. He owed them $14,500 in outstanding charges. Oh my lord. <laughs> oh, I guess he's a, it's not like his own dentistry work. It's like a bill to his business. Still, I mean, that's fairly extraordinary. And the owner, Sophie Marie Barino, was keen to collect. She launched a lawsuit against him in the same month that Guswell Jr. was shot dead, putting her right at the top of the dentist's hit list. Oh my god, he's gonna kill her. I honestly, I don't know why I didn't see that coming, but I didn't see that coming. His first attempt took place less than two weeks before Ronald was shot dead at his own home. On March the 20th, 1979, Barbara spotted a strange clump of materials on the floor of her business's garage. When the police analyzed it, they discovered it was a package of ruined dynamite attached to a pressure switch. It must have been rigged to blow under the bottom of her delivery vehicle. Thankfully, the explosives were damp, and when the switch triggered, they only went off with an underwhelming little pop not a bang. Engelman had failed to blow his financial woes away. <laughs> Gallon, dude. And would have to find another way to settle the score. Fast forward another 10 months and time is running out. A final decision was to be passed on January the 21st, 1980. So Engelman decided to just give the exact same plan another crack. One week before the ruling was due, Barbara hopped into her delivery van, parked out front of her laboratory, she turned the key, stepped on the gas, and the entire thing went up in a furious fireball. She was killed instantly. Uh, after I found that explosives under my car, I'd be checking my goddamn car every single time. I'd just be, like, not driving. I'd leave the country. I'd go, like, after an assassination attempt, like, full on, like, someone's trying to absolutely murder me, and I don't know why. I'd be like, I'm just gonna leave. <laughs> like, fuck this. 
Investigators once again found evidence of a pressure switch mechanism, just like in the attempted bombing the year before. Oh, it was a year later! Oh my! And concluded that either dynamite or a liquid explosive was used. Witnesses came forward to report that three men in orange jumpsuits were seen working on the car earlier that morning. They assumed it was just some innocent routine maintenance. But of course, it was Engelman and his cronies fixing the car bomb underneath the innocent woman's ride. And Engelman bringing in more people to his crimes. Rather than just settle his financial quibbles like a normal person, Engelman preferred to spend hundreds of hours planning an intricate murder plot that would wipe the slate clean. He would literally rather blow a human being to smithereens rather than face bankruptcy. Suddenly, those unpaid dental bills are starting to look a lot more urgent, no? Yes? <laughs> you may feel a slight sting. Now, I'm no detective, but I'm pretty sure one of the first things they get taught in academics is that money equals motive. If you have a body, one of the first things you should do is check their balance sheets to see who might have financial incentive to remove them from the equation. Hello! <laughs> Following that logic, there was little doubt that Engelman had something to do with the bomb that blew Barbara sky high, but as usual, there was no hard proof. Engelman was always extremely careful not to leave any physical evidence behind, no matter how much circumstantial evidence pointed towards him. The investigators, they were always lacking the crucial key to unlock the case. They found it, though, in the form of Ruth Engelman, the diabolical dentist's most recent wife. In the end, it was Engelman's macho bravado that brought about his demise. He had let Ruth in on some of the details of his crimes during their time together, perhaps thinking it would impress her. Ah, yes, almost as bad as writing down your crimes, the bragging about the crimes, and also bringing so many people into your crimes. I knew from the very beginning, you're going to get caught because, like, so many people are involved in your crimes and you're telling people about them. What are you up to, Engelman? <laughs> it's a bad idea all round. But actually, she was terrified. Reasonably so. <laughs> After it was clear that Engelman wasn't joking, Ruth started to fear that she might be next on his list of targets. So she and the cops collaborated on a sting operation to put him behind bars for good. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms provided Ruth with a wire, which she wore when meeting up with Engelman several times throughout January and February of 1980. The resulting tapes were an absolute goldmine for the prosecution. Engelman could be heard saying that Sophie Barrera deserved to be killed and confessing that he was behind the failed bombing attempt in 1970. <laughs> of course, you're talking about it, weren't you? He also admitted his part in the first plot we covered today with the dental assistant, Carmen. He even implicated Robert Handy, revealing that the reason he came by shortly after the killing was to help him break down his $10,000 payment into smaller denominations to prevent the money from being tracked. Ruth herself remembered that day and testified to it in court. <laughs> All three of the conspirators were rounded up and charged along with Garmin's brother. Ah, yes, he got involved in those crimes as well. It was a fairly short trial, first time rounds, with Engelman and Handy facing charges of mail fraud and conspiracy. What about murder? <laughs> what about lots and lots of murder? Conspiracy's not part of murder. It's not, no. They were both convicted in August 1980, Engelman to 30 years and Handy to just 20. Uh, 30 years is a lot, though, and I guess in the meantime they can focus on that murder thing. Let's just get him put away for now. They got 30 years to figure it out. The latter turned full snitch on his old accomplice when the rest of the murder charges started coming to light, which was the only way he could escape the maximum punishments for himself. Yeah, <laughs> look, dude, you brought people in on your crimes. They're going to turn against you when the shit hits the fan, and you're going to weigh forever, or maybe getting a death penalty. 
The federal murder charges which followed for Engerman started with the killing of Sophie Barrera. Another 30 years were tacked onto his sentence for that. And then later that year, the murder of Peter Hom. Another 50 big ones. And the cherry on top came when Andre Jones retracted his statement regarding the Gusoir case. In 1985, partway through serving his sentence in an Illinois federal prison, he pled guilty to all those murders too. As for whether or not he, his supporting cast of accomplices faced justice, it's kind of a mixed bag. Barbara Boyle was sentenced to 50 years for a part in deceiving and killing her husband. Excellent. You deserve it, Barbara. Carmen Miranda and her brother were busted too. Excellent. But amazingly, the prosecutors let them off the hook in exchange for the brother's testimony against Engelman. Wow. I mean, you what? You you murder for hire and you get let off? That's crazy. He's already in prison forever. What are you up to? That was the way they the only way they could be sure of a guilty verdict in the original conspiracy case. Guys, there was so much heavy killed so many people. Come on, you're letting these guys off? They deserve to go to prison forever, especially Carmen. The brother maybe less, but prison for some time, I think. No, what? That's not justice. Because at the end of the day, that was the important thing. Getting this accomplished, sadistic, efficient murderer behind bars for good. He's gonna go to... They should want it all. St. Louis's most prolific hobbyist hitman was condemned to spend the rest of his life in federal prison with no hope of release. Also at the beginning, I remember talking about how like he's a hitman or whatever, and it's like, no, 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 dude. You're the guy who, like, organized all the crimes. It's not a hitman. You're just a premeditated murderer. A hitman's some guy who, like, gets paid money. And it's like, you... You know, in the, isn't it... I, is this just my imagination from the movies? But it's like, a hitman is some guy you go, like, here's, you know, a million dollars or whatever. I don't know how much it really is. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I don't know how much it costs for a hitman. <laughs> but I guess somewhere between a couple of grand and a million. Um, You get paid that money, and then you go kill the random person. That's a hitman, not this crazy, this is premeditated murder. Uh, he spent the rest of his life in federal prison with no hope of release. Wrap up. Engelman's killing career was at an end, but he almost got the chance to inflict sadistic pain upon others even after his arrest. There was talk of letting him to return to dentistry with a job in the prison clinic. That idea was shot down promptly. The last thing you want is a self-admitted sociopath being able to stick sharp metal objects into other prisoners' mouths. So Engelman retired from both of his careers simultaneously good. When the damage is tallied up, we know for sure that he committed seven murders. However, that glaring blank spot in the timeline between number two and three is screaming out at me. There might be a whole lot more deaths that we don't know about. Based on the testimony of his friends and relatives, some have speculated that the real number might be upwards of a dozen. And the scariest thing about Glenn and Engelman is that, unlike the majority of egotistical murderers that we've featured on this show, it seems like he was actually, well, good at it. His macabre talents were undeniable, which makes you worry about all the secret serial killers that might be out there, hidden in plain sight, that will never be caught. And yeah, he was he was fine at it, but then he brought loads of people in, and he talked about his crimes, and he bragged about his crimes to his wife. He was like, you psycho, I'm going to the police. So to call him good at this, Callum, I think would be a bit of a stretch, to be honest. Had he not been sold out by his terrified ex-wife, Engelman, it just, why, don't tell your ex-wife, Engelman. <laughs> that is not, <laughs> of course she's going to sell you out, you psycho. Engelman himself probably could have kept pulling off his meticulous murder plots for years to come, but in the end, his bravado got the better of him. The lead prosecutor on his case, Gordon Angney, told the papers, quote, He says he does it for money, but I think that's a front. He never did it for enough to make it worthwhile. He related homicidal intimacy with sexual intimacy. There was almost a sexual excitement about killing. He said to have quite a sexual drive. He has a very macho image of himself. 
Rather than shirk away from the cameras, he relished the limelight while it lasted. But after a few years with no fresh charges against him, the sensation died down. Engelman was largely forgotten until 1996, when a trashy slasher film loosely based on him called The Dentist revived interest in his case. The next time he appeared in the papers was after his death on March 4, 1999. For a man who specialized in plotting intricate murders, infamous for their inventiveness as much as their brutality, his own end was pretty mundane. It wasn't a sniper's bullet or a car bomb that finished him off, but diabetes. Glennon passed away in the prison medical clinic from complications during treatment, taking the true extent of his crimes to his grave. And uh, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> Oh my dismembered appendices. Number one. One of the more peculiar aspects of this story is the surprise interjection of Andre Jones, who took the blame for killing Robert Guswell. His story was that he had a female friend pretend to be a prostitute to draw men into robberies. He described a man that looked like Ron coming around the corner, pistol whipping him, then shooting him. He explained he got the case details from interrogators, but why take the blame at all? He wasn't clear on that, although at one point suggested he couldn't identify the real killer because he wanted to protect his family's lives. Dude, this is very confusing, and that's just, just made it more confusing, haven't you? Number two. Well, Engelman passed away in prison. Barbara Boyle, I was just wondering what happened to Barbara, was lucky enough to taste freedom again years later. Mm, no! In a premature petition to the parole board in 2000, she said, She loved my husband deeply, and I still mourn Ronald to this day. That definitely gets the gold model for mental gymnastics. Her request was denied. Excellent. But nine years later, she was released back into the world. If any elderly bachelors in St. Louis come across the name Barbara Boyle, probably best give her a wide berth. Yes, Barbara, you, you're a horrible person. What were you up to? This has been an episode of The Casual Criminalist. I hope you didn't enjoy it because that would make you a psycho. <laughs> No, this episode was pretty dark. Um, if you did like it, please do hit that thumbs up button below. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, all of that good stuff. If you're listening to this as a podcast, subscribe as well. Leave me a review. That would be grand. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.